So we are in this series called The Gift List, and we're looking at the gifts that God gives to us at Christmas. Years ago, uh, not that many years ago, but a few years ago, um, my youngest son Calvin came up and he asked me a question. He said, you probably don't remember this, Calvin, but he said, Dad, what's the best present you've ever received at Christmas? And at first I thought, you know, he was just kind of thinking, you know, just generally. And so I'm thinking, oh, well, that's, that's kind of a hard one. And then he started prompting me. He started saying things like, it was after you and mom got married. And I thought, <laughs> okay, he's, he wants a specific answer. So now I'm trying to think back, okay, what did my kids give me? There's a right answer to this question. And so I'm racking my brain, and I can't even remember one present that I got. I mean, it's like, if I had time, you know, I could figure it out. And then he just, he finally gives up, and he goes, it was Cameron, because my oldest son was born on Christmas Eve. And so I'm like, oh, wow, big time, big time dad failed, right? But Christmas for us is, uh, is always a reminder in our family of that time because we celebrate my oldest son's um, birth. And I just, you know, I, so it always reminds me that 2003 was a tough Christmas. Any of you parents who have gone through that transition of being a couple to having your first baby in the house know exactly what I'm talking about. And for us, we were grateful to be able to get home um, he was born on Christmas Eve, early in the morning to get home for Christmas, but that first night was so hard. You know, he wasn't eating quite right, and there was a lot of crying, and I was even sick. Back then I had a cold, I, and I know this because I've seen pictures, seen pictures of me in a mask, you know, holding my son. It's a terrible thing. So you're trying to adjust all these things, and of course we had family coming, and I mean, or we actually some family had already arrived because he was born, and... So um, that was a tough Christmas, it was a great Christmas, it was an amazing Christmas because we had our first baby, but it was also a really hard Christmas. And I, I think about that, and I can't help but think about that, not just because his birthday happens then, but because when you enter into the stories of Jesus' birth, this is not the story of just everything being perfect and beautiful and peaceful. I know we like to think of it that way. But I love the fact that the biblical stories of Jesus' birth are real. They, are, um, they, have the, they don't hold back on sort of the, the tough things. And some of it you have to read between the lines to, to hear that. And so I hope that we can do a little bit of that this morning as we read from um, Matthew's Gospel. So this is Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, but before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, 
A virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as the angel from God commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph called him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, you've already heard my prayer. My prayer is that we would hear your voice and that we would be able to enter into this story of the incarnation of the baby Jesus, of Mary and Joseph and the others that we run into in these birth narratives, that we would enter into these and see the reality of it and see and hear the love that comes through it. We ask this in your name. Amen. The first Christmas was not an easy Christmas when you think and hear the story. Many of us, of course, have images of Jesus lying in a manger after having been rejected by the innkeeper. Uh, there's a whole problem with some of that, too, but that's Luke's narrative. So there's only two places we find the birth stories in the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. And Matthew actually doesn't have any of that. Matthew starts, as we heard with the genealogy, which is very rich, if you heard that last week as we looked at that, and then his focus is not even really on Mary as much as Luke's is, but on Joseph. So that's where we find Matthew's focus. And when we look at Joseph through Matthew's eyes, what we see is this challenge, a huge challenge that's being placed before him. Because he's engaged to be married, but before they came together before they were married. Again, this is another way of saying what's translated differently later in the text. Before they had sexual relations, Mary is pregnant. Now, the, the CEV version that I read this morning says, um, says that he, that Mary became pregnant. Um, was, uh, just the first man. Um, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Other translations I actually like a little bit better. Like the NRSV says that she was found to be pregnant. Because what we don't quite grasp is that in the, in the original language in this Greek, this description of what happens when here is like this surprise. Like, surprise, Mary's pregnant. Not necessarily a good surprise. But it's this idea that she was found out to be pregnant. Joseph finds out that she's pregnant. So what does Joseph do? Joseph decides to break off the engagement. This actually took a formal act, so it would be more, we would think of it probably more as like an actual divorce. He's, he wants to divorce her quietly. Why? Well, the scriptures say that Joseph was a righteous man, and he didn't want to humiliate her. It actually, again, this is hard for us culturally through our ears because I think we often want to think, well, Joseph was a righteous man, so he didn't want to humiliate her. Actually, that's not how it reads. We could actually translate this, although Joseph was a righteous man, he didn't want to humiliate her. Because see, being righteous, when it uses this language, what it is saying is that Joseph is a man who follows the law and the traditions. Both the written law 
and also the oral law that's been passed down. And so the oral law says, look, if you marry someone who's committed adultery, you are basically tainted as well, and now you're committing a sin. And so for Joseph, he is a righteous man, so he wants to be obedient to that, but he also doesn't want to humiliate Mary. So he formulates a plan where he's going to try to do his best to do both, which is do what's right, what he believes is right, and to call off the engagement, break it off, but also do it in a way that doesn't bring attention, any more attention, to Mary that she's already going to receive as being pregnant. And what's interesting about the text is it says, while he was thinking about this, as Joseph was thinking about these things, he's formulating his plan, and you can just imagine what that's like, right? This is not easy. He's conflicted, he's trying to figure out what to do. As he's thinking about this plan, the angel visits him. Now Joseph, and I think it's important for us to know, Joseph obviously did not believe Mary. We have to assume that Mary has shared this. This is how Joseph found out. She's probably not showing that she's pregnant yet, so Mary tells Joseph what's going on. Joseph, in his plan to divorce her, obviously doesn't believe Mary, so you can guess what Joseph does believe. Joseph does believe that Mary has been unfaithful. And not just unfaithful to him, but unfaithful to God and the way that she has behaved and the choices that she has made. So he obviously doesn't believe her, and so it takes an angel to visit Joseph, in this case, visiting him in a dream. You have to wonder what Joseph is thinking about. I mean, it says it comes in a dream, and this happens while he's thinking about this, so my mind is, he's doing what I have done many times, but he's got this major problem in his life, he's laying in bed, and he's trying to fall asleep, and it's just turning in his head. Right? It's that worry and that concern. And he falls asleep and the angel visits him. So what was going through Joseph's mind? It was more probably than just, oh, Mary's pregnant. I mean, there's all those details. That when you did a, mar- a wedding back then, this was a big deal. I mean, so all those plans, family plans, money plans that had been going on, those things have to be canceled. The dowry, which has probably already been paid from Joseph's family to Mary's family, well, they need to give that back. So he's going to have to go explain to them why he's asking for that back, right? He's probably also thinking, who am I going to marry? I know that, again, this sounds weird to us because we think, oh, the two people, they fall in love and they say, we're going to get married. But this is not how this happened. Okay, the families made the arrangements. Joseph and Mary probably didn't even really know each other. So... For him, he's probably thinking, okay, I'm supposed to get married. I'm at that point in my life, so who am I going to marry now? And how long will that be before I can get married? He's also obviously thinking, what's going to happen to this girl, Mary? I mean, people are going to find out about this. And probably, I imagine, one of the big questions going through his mind, who is the father? Right, so all of this is going through Joseph's head and he's visited by the angel and the angel comes with a message that actually is not all that comforting when you think about it. It is and it isn't. isn't. Because the angel comes and he finds out, okay, she hasn't been with another man. So this is good news, right? But the angel says, you need to take her as your wife. 
and you need to raise his son and be his father. Not only that, you don't even get to choose the name. We've already chosen a name for this boy. He's going to be named Jesus. And then that whole thing about Emmanuel, God with us, must have really thrown him for a loop. So just like Jesus, what the angel, what Jesus will have to do, what the angel is telling Joseph, is that he is going to have to be obedient to God in doing something that everyone else from the outside is going to look as being disobedient, as being disobedient. Do you see that? So he has to obey God in taking Mary as his wife and raising Jesus as his son. But from everyone else's perspective, they're going to look at that as either Mary and Joseph were doing things they shouldn't have been doing before they got married, or Joseph is marrying someone who was already unfaithful and disobedient to the law. So either way, his reputation is destroyed. And this is what God's asking him to do. So it's not an easy message. It's not an easy thing. And one of the questions I think that often comes up as we think through this is, well, did Joseph love Mary? I want you to hold on to that. I want you to hold on to that question. So let's talk about Emmanuel for a moment. This is, we hear this in songs, we sang it today. Emmanuel means God with us or God is with us. Joseph is told by the angel that this is going to be the name, this is one of the names of this child is going to be born, Emmanuel. God with us, as in God is a human with us. Now we're all sitting here centuries later as Christians and we kind of get used to that idea and that sound. But you have to understand, coming from a tradition, growing up in, the, in this um, Jewish tradition, in this um, Old Testament Bible tradition, God is not human. Now there's other religions around there that throw in that idea that maybe gods could take on human form to kind of play around and do weird things or whatever else. But God is God. God is the creator. God is separate. God is other from creation. And so this message must have been extremely confusing. God with us, Emmanuel. So when we talk about the incarnation, when we talk about God taking on flesh, this thing that is around in all of our major scenes and is reminded in, around us all over the place this time of year, we're talking about the incarnation, we're really talking about this mind-boggling miracle. For many people, they say it's the supreme miracle, even more so than the resurrection. This idea that God takes on human form, not just human form, but the form of a baby, that God would do that. Uh, if any of you are reading along in the book by Tim Keller, he quotes J.J. Packer, and I love this. He says, God became human. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any child. The babyhood of the Son of God is a reality. The more you think about this, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. The God of all the universe needing to be fed and changed 
and held and protected. The more you think about it, it really is mind-boggling. And there's this great question that Tim Keller asks in his book, and he says, okay, so if we accept that reality, this incarnation truth, what difference does it actually make in the way we live our lives or should live our lives? Because that's how we look at Scripture. I mean, these stories are recorded for us to go and enter into and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Well, first of all, we should live a life of service because if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we're saying we're following this God who gave up everything, set aside all of God's glory to come and be a baby. I mean, just think about all the other ways God could have done this. Jesus could have come for a while and then left. God could have come older and wiser and left. God could have been born in a palace. God could have been born being able to speak many languages and having all knowledge, but God chooses to come as a baby who has to be taught and has to learn and has to grow and has to be protected and cared for and then gives up his life in the ultimate act of service and sacrifice on the cross. I think we, you know, we look at the cross as we should, as Jesus' act of sacrifice, but sometimes I think we forget that if we're talking about God in the flesh, the larger act of sacrifice is actually becoming human. This act of service. So what does it mean for us? Again, I want to share another quote. Because this is so good. I read this and I thought, I have, to, I have to read this again, even if you've heard it already. This is J.J. Packer again. He says, it's a shame, it's, It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, I will, be so, I will be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians, go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but after a pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God might meet those needs, avert their eyes and pass by on the other side. That is not the Christmas spirit. But it is the spirit of some Christians, alas, they are many, whose ambition in life seems limited to being, to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the marginalized of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get by as best they can. I hear that, and I hear a good conviction that I think we need to hear. That if we believe in this incarnation, and we believe we're following Jesus, then our greatest ambition can't simply be that our life is nice, and that our kid's life is nice, and that the marginalized of the community just fight for themselves and get by on their own. So I think the first thing, when we talk about the incarnations, it means we are also called to follow Jesus in a sacrificial life of service. The second thing is that when we hear about the incarnation, we're reminded of the comfort we have in suffering. If we believe that God became a human being and lived the life he did at the time he did and died in the way he did, then we believe that when we're praying, we're not just talking to some distant God who doesn't get it. 
But we're talking to a God who's experienced the death of human suffering and fully understands it. I mean, think about the things that Jesus would have experienced. We don't have these stories, right? But just the ordinary things of human life that Jesus experienced. Having to grow up. Having to obey your parents, even when you think their rules are dumb. Having to study and go to school is the kind of study they had, at least. Having to go through puberty. Having to leave your home and enter the adult world. Having to work in a job of manual labor. Having to manage your finances and... Actually, one of my favorite things is having to, you know, miss a shot when you're playing basketball. <laughs> okay, I know Jesus didn't play basketball, but that's one of the examples my, one of my professors used, and I always held on to that. If we believe Jesus was fully human, that means when he played whatever games they had with their friends, that he didn't win all the time. In fact, he failed, probably more often than he, he won, like most of us. So just those ordinary Small experiences of suffering that we all go through in our daily life. Being hungry, right? Being thirsty. But then, of course, the bigger ones. We have to believe that Jesus probably got sick. I'm sick today. It's kind of part of being human, right? If he's fully human, then Jesus experienced that. Jesus would have experienced the loss of loved ones. Seeing people he loved pass away gone. In fact, since we're talking about Joseph, it seems very likely that his dad, Joseph, died before he began his ministry. He was 33 years old, 30-ish to 33, when he started his ministry. So Joseph is no longer mentioned after that point. Mary is, and his brothers are, the sisters are. So we think his dad died. He also experienced the betrayal of his closest friends and his family. He was an innocent man who was accused of a crime that he didn't commit by those who were in power and both the religious and the political rulers were in on that. And finally, of course, he experienced the physical pain of torture and being put to death. So when we talk about the incarnation, we say we have a God who understands our suffering. Who cares about our suffering? And didn't just sit back and say, that looks terrible, but entered into it and said, I know what this is like. A third thing we can say when we talk about the incarnation and what that means for us is that word that is given to Joseph, God with us, Emmanuel. You see, unlike the Old Testament stories, once we get to this story in Jesus' incarnation, God becomes close, intimate, and personal, and through Jesus, accessible in a way that was not possible before. So Moses can, can barely get close to God. You hear the story of Elijah, you know, and hiding in a crevice in a rock as God passes by and only getting to see God's backside. You see the people of Israel cowering at the, the bottom of Mount Sinai, unable to get close enough to God or they will die. You see God's presence in the tabernacle and in the Ark of the Covenant, and so that even as the Ark is being moved, if someone reaches out and actually grabs it, they die. And God is holy. God is powerful. God is other. And this is all true of God. 
But in Jesus Christ, we have God with us. Emmanuel. We can talk with God. We can listen to God. There's no longer a need for an intermediary. You don't have to have a priest to stand between you and God to protect you or to speak for you. God with us. It's a relationship. And of course, like all relationships, it does require maintenance and effort. And so now we have this great gift. God with us. What will we do with it? Will we ignore it? Or will we pay attention to it? And so Tim Keller in his book makes some great points about this. And he says, you know, it takes courage to have God with us. This is something that we need to have is some courage because when we say we're taking God with us, just as Jesus said, if you're going to take on my name, you're going to experience some of the things that I experienced, right? It's not just God with us so you're rich and you're protected and your family's protected and your life is good. That's prosperity gospel. That's not the good news gospel. The good news gospel is that, you know, God has come and he has died for you and your sins are forgiven and now you've got to share that message and that doesn't mean your life is all going to be sweet and easy. So it takes courage because we're going to be taking on the world's disdain. I mean, that's how the Bible stories start off when Jesus comes. Look at the story of Joseph that we're talking about this morning. I mean, just, and, and Jesus. I mean, whoever finds out about this story, about what really happened with Joseph and Mary, are probably going to laugh at them. Oh yeah, Mary's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, how well does that go over? So pretty much most people are believing that there's some kind of wrongdoing here. That's how the story starts. By being obedient and being part of Jesus' story, we see in the very beginning that they're taking on the world's disdain. And Jesus said, that will happen for you as well. Even in small ways, for us as modern people, so many think that you have to get rid of your intellect. You have to give up thinking if you're going to believe these stories. And so people look at Christians as being naive, look at them as being hypocritical, because we do, we sin, and yet we say we believe in this holy God that says you shouldn't do this. And we go, yeah, that's why we need Jesus. We're sinners. But we are looked at as being hypocritical and gullible. We have to have the courage to stand, to give up our right to um, self-determination. In other words, if, if we're going to have God with us, then we don't get to be in charge. And this is an ongoing battle. This is hard for us. Many modern Christians still try to accept Jesus and Scripture on their own terms. In other words, I'll be a Christian, but I don't really want that stuff. Or I'll believe the, the Scriptures, but I want to kind of just forget a few of these things. And so we want to take God on our terms. But that's not what it means to have God with us. It means that instead of having Jesus as our advisor, which is what some people want, we have Jesus as our Lord. That was actually the, the big deal for early Christians. When they said Jesus is Lord, they were speaking both about how Jesus was in charge of their life, but also how Caesar was not. And that was enough to get you put to death in many cases. And I would say today as modern Christians, to truly say Jesus is Lord is still a very dangerous thing to do. Because when you say Jesus is Lord, you say, I am not going to decide the outcome of my life. I'm going to follow God. That means, as we talked about earlier, that then we can't just ignore those who are marginalized and hurt. Even if we can't see them, we know our spirit, the spirit of God in us tells us that we have to care for them. 
But it also means a life of adventure. When we give up our right to self-determination, it means God's going to take us to meet people and to do things that we would never imagine. And if we went around this room and we shared your stories, I bet many of you would have some great stories to tell. I mean, I think about the places in this world I've visited and the friends I've made and the people I've seen. Um, that As I follow God, it's just so rich. And so many of those stories are some of the hard times in my life too, but it's so rich, I wouldn't give it up for anything. Giving up a right to self-determination. It also takes courage because if we believe all of this, we have to also admit that we're a sinner. Verse 21, it says, She will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And I think that sometimes we get into the trap of thinking this means that at some point in my life I had to say, I'm a sinner. God, I want you to forgive me. Thank you. Here we go. But I believe that this means it takes the courage for us to admit this on a daily basis. To be willing to admit that we're still struggling with sin, that we still don't have it right. It's much easier, I think, to just repent, to turn away from our sins in general, Say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. That's a lot easier because it's just sort of general. It's sort of out there. We can kind of lump them all together. And to actually do business with this present Emmanuel God and say, I've got sins that I'm struggling with right now and these are what they are. How have you treated others today? What about the person you pass by that needs help and that command to love your neighbor as yourself? What are you doing with the things that God has given you? With your money and with your time? With your family? So the courage to do all of those things. Today I, I wanted to talk about this gift of love. And so I want to go back to the question. Did Joseph love Mary? And I think that this is one of those things we often just kind of feel like we have to guess at. But actually, I'm going to say, I think we can find an answer to this if we understand what love is, and we have to define love by the greatest example of love, which we find in Jesus. So if we define love as being something warm and fuzzy, a feeling that we have for somebody, then it's really hard for us to know what Joseph felt that way about Mary. In fact, it's probably pretty unlikely what we know about the culture back then. And if we define love as sort of getting, you know, the butterflies into your stomach when you see that someone really special and thinking about them all the time and being attracted by the way they look, if that's love, then again, it's really hard for us to know if Joseph felt any of that. And it also seems kind of unlikely. But if we define love by Jesus and Emmanuel, God with us, God taking on flesh, then we understand love as something quite different. Love becomes a choice. Love is a decision that you make for someone else's greatest good, not for your own. This is a love that sets everything aside. It's a love that's willing to sacrifice for others, regardless of what the feelings are. God became a human baby, I and mean, this, this changes everything. It changes everything about what it means to truly love someone. So did Joseph love Mary? You bet he did. Because he gives up his reputation, he gives up what's comfortable, he gives up what's convenient. And as we'll find out, he's going to have to give up his home and even his safety and run away to Egypt. And he does it all for Mary and this unborn child. It's love. 
And loaded within this Christmas story is both the image and this idea of the gift of love. And so we're called to both enjoy this gift because it's given for us, but also to share this gift. Let's pray. Lord, so often our feelings betray us because we we try to muster up enough to really love those around us and it's hard to do. But God, we want to press into you, into your spirit and your presence in our life, knowing that love is about making these decisions for others and setting aside our own selfishness. So we're so grateful for Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, being born as a baby and living this life. I pray that we'll be constantly reminded by your spirit what true love is as we move through this season. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.